If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 91. Just to kind of give you a heads up where we'll go, where we're going in the next several weeks. This will be a standalone message, and so we'll next next week. Next week, I want us to take a a real serious look at the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how important it is for you and I to be able to convey that gospel message. How important it is for you and I to be able to articulate it, to be able to verbalize it. We're going to talk about that. Next, uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. The week after that, I do believe, puts us at Mother's Day. And um, uh, Lord willing, I intend to bring uh, a message from Proverbs 31 that day. And then after that, then we're going to begin our deep dive into First John. And that'll probably take up most of the summer. So that's where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. But today... Um, Today, I was drawn to a particular psalm that is of great encouragement. Could you use a little encouragement today? Hello? Amen. Uh, This this psalm has no title if you look in your your Bible. If you look at the previous psalm, Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And Psalm 92 is titled, A Psalm or Song for the Sabbath Day. Uh, You look... If you kind of scan through the book of Psalms, you see most of them have various titles like a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph, a Psalm of the, uh, for the choir director. However, Psalm 91 does not have a title. A Jewish tradition considers that when that happens, you, you apply the author's name to the previous Psalm. So we may be able to assign Moses to as the author to this Psalm as well. Uh, this is a Psalm for those who need encouragement. Uh, it is a psalm for those who are depressed and downtrodden. So it could have been penned by Moses uh, when he, he and the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. As we read through this psalm, you will see that there is very, very, very much application for our day and our hour. This is not a psalm for those who think they have it all together. Anybody here happen to think you got it all together? You got it all figured out? Um, This is not a psalm for people who think that they're bulletproof. This is a psalm for those who know. They know without a shadow of a doubt they need protection. They know that they need defending. This is a psalm for those who know they need a fortress. This is a psalm for those who are dealing with trouble. Anyone here dealing with any kind of trouble? I can answer that from the scripture. The Bible tells us in Job chapter 14, verse 1, man, that is mankind, that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That means that our life upon this earth is like a vapor, as James says, right? It is for a brief time, but it's tumultuous while we're here. It is very much tumultuous while we're here. All of us deal with troubles. All, and all of us need to learn how to deal with troubles in a Christ-like manner. So look with me at Psalm 91. I want to read all of it to your hearing, all 16 verses. And we'll title this message, The Secret Place. Psalm 91, beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God, 
He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your precious holy word. Your word. Not man's words, but yours. Inspired, impressed upon men to pen the inerrant, infallible word of God. God, we pray that you would add a blessing, not just to the hearing and the reading of your word, but also to its proclamation. God, we pray that you would bring all distractions to a close. God, that you would bring every heart and mind focused here and now before your face. God, as we read and go through your word, may you give us hearts to receive, to engraft these truths into our very beings and give us wills to be obedient, to obey the word of God. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a number of ways that we could outline this passage. We could outline it with all of the assurance and the protection that the Lord gives to the believer, and we'll consider that as we go through but however, as I read this psalm over and over, I just kept hearing kind of three, three voices or three perspectives in my mind. And that's the outline that we'll use this morning. Uh, this is an encouraging psalm. It's a positive psalm. It's an uplifting psalm. And there's also an evangelistic tones to it as well. But more than anything, there is a flow through this psalm of giving and receiving. Therefore, we're going to look at who gives and who receives what in the text. Our outline is what the author receives, what the reader receives, and then finally what God receives. Point number one, let's consider verse one and what the author receives. Look what it says. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This psalm is just chalk-packed full of beautiful blessings. However, the blessings here in the psalm are not promised to all believers. 
But for those who live in close fellowship with God, think about this, Jesus had many followers in his ministry, but he only had 12 disciples. He had 12 disciples, but three of them were closer to him than the other nine. We've talked about this in the last several weeks. Peter, James, and John went a little further with Jesus than the rest did. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed in, 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 into his, in, into his uh, 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 it, uh, glorified state, into his glorified being with Elijah and Moses. They went a little further with Jesus in the garden when Jesus went to pray before he was arrested and then crucified. So this psalm is for those that have that special, deep, intimate relationship with the Lord. But let me stop here. That is the special, deep relationship that God desires for all of his church. Not all of us have it. God desires for us all to have it. Think of it in terms of the ancient Jewish temple. Every child of God looked toward that inner sanctuary, looked toward where the veil was, behind the veil, where the mercy seat was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, where the blood was sprinkled. That was the most holy place. They would run up to it, enjoy occasional approaches to it, but they could not habitually reside in the presence of God. What is the secret place? What is this secret place? Think about this. The most important part of a believer's life is what God sees. What we come and do in here in front of one another can be for show. It can be a facade. It can be faked. But what is most important is what God sees. What does he see when you go home and that door shuts and there's no other eyes on you but his? What happens? What does God see when you are out in your life away from the church, away from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you still conduct yourself in a joyful, Christ-like manner? Or do you cuss and fuss just like the rest of the world? Because that is what is most important to God. Verse 1 gives us a good illustration of what the secret place is. Look, look at it again. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Think about the secret, secret hiding places that you might have had as a kid. Anybody have one? My kids will take two chairs and, you know, put a sheet over top of them, you know, and that'll be like a, a fort, and that's their, their hiding place. They've done it for since they were, you know, real little. Get in there and play for hours with their toys. I know of other people, you know, that when they were kids, they would play under a staircase or something like that. Go somewhere where you would go to get alone, and it was your safe place. It was where you felt the most safe. And you would, you know, if you had a, a best friend or cousin, maybe even, maybe even you were close enough to a sibling that you would bring them in there too, right? This is the, this is the, the picture that the psalmist is painting in Psalm 91. God has a secret hiding place and he invites his church to join him there. The secret place that is spoken of is that deep, intimate, personal relationship. And notice what it says. Look what it says. It says, he that dwell, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide. It doesn't say 
He, it does not say that God invites us to visit. It doesn't say that people visit the secret place. The promise is to those who dwell there, which means they live there. Abiding in Christ becomes our hiding place. To dwell in God becomes our address. Our, our address here on earth may be where we receive our mail, but no matter where we go, whether we're on the job, whether we're in the grocery store, whether we're wherever, we're dwelling with the Lord. God invites us to pack up and move into his secret place. And to do so, we must walk away from the world. Get away from the clamor, the hustle and bustle, the enticements of the world, and be willing to get alone and get quiet before God and allow Him to investigate and search the inner recesses of our heart and mind, that things that we don't reveal to anyone else. Things that we don't reveal, maybe, maybe not even reveal to our spouse, but we don't let see the light of day. And yet we need to allow God in. We need to allow God access to those things. Why? Because if there's things there that don't need to be there, God will reveal them to us and we need to get them out. Secret places imply honesty and trust. We cannot join God in his secret place and we're, unless we're willing to be transparent and honest with him. And we might as well be transparent and honest because he sees all and he knows all. We can fool, try to fool everybody in here, but we can never fool God. And that secret place is abiding in the will of God, in the presence of God. It is that close relationship with God. It is when our relationship with God governs everything else that we do. How do we, how do, we do that? What, is this, what, what, is, what does that mean to abide in Christ? Let me read to you from John chapter 15. Let me read a few verses from John chapter 15 where the Lord Jesus talks about being the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. means he's the, the pruner. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now listen to this. Abide in me, and I in you. How? How? How, how, is, how is this? How, how do we abide in Christ? As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except, no, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words. And my words abide in you. Ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even I have kept, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 12, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command. So what is this abiding in the Lord? It's obeying the Lord. Obeying the Lord, first and foremost. Abide in the Lord by consistent, perpetual Obedience, that's obedience to the Lord over time. Obedience to the Lord is the mark of a true believer. 
So in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing His Word to fill our minds and to fill our hearts and direct our wills and therefore transform our affections. I hear people quote this verse a lot. Uh, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. That does not mean that you delight in the Lord so you can get a brand new car, so you can get a great big house on the biggest hill on the biggest side of town. When you do that, you're delighting in the Lord so you can get what you want. So your delight is not in the Lord. Your delight is in your delights. When you delight yourself in the Lord, you allow His Word to transform you from the inside out. You're the new creation in Christ, right? You've been saved. You've been to Calvary. You've repented of your sin. You've trusted in Him for the salvation of your soul as it is in the, in, in, in the baptism. Buried with Him in baptism unto death. Raised with Him in newness of life. New creature. But then there, 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 there begins the, the refining process. The sanctification process. That's the word I was looking for. Sanctification. The onward walk. And, and we become more sanctified, we become more Christ-like the more we abide in His Word, stay in His Word, away from the world, and we abide in His Word, let His Word have its work in us, transform how we think, how we feel, how we see things. We filter everything we see in the world through the lens of the Bible. And that changes our heart, and Christ changes our wants and our desires. And therefore, our desires become things that glorify the Lord. You, the, 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 the old song, we sing it often. Um, turn, no, we don't sing it often. We should. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And what happens when your eyes are focused upon him? The things of earth do what? They grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace, you begin thinking, how in the world did that ever entice me? How in the world did that ever bring me happiness and joy? I look at things now and the things that people invest their time and their effort and their money in, and I'm just like, what a waste. They have no eternal value. They have no eternal value. They carry no eternal weight. There are nothing that you will be able to lay at the feet of Jesus. And you wonder why? Why even invest your time in it? How does that come about? Obeying the Lord and abiding in His Word. Letting His Word have the work, its work within you. To be spirit-filled. In, in other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected with what we do with our Bibles. If you only open them on Sunday when I preach, you're not getting enough. You're not getting enough. You should open it day in and day out. Preferably in the morning before you even begin the day. Why? Because you're going to be centered in the Word of God and you're, it's going to set the tone and anchor you for the rest of the day. And if, you, if you begin your day with the Word of God, it's a lot less likely for the things that the world's going to throw at you to knock you off course and get you into the flesh. 
So the first thing about abiding in the, uh, uh, abiding in the Lord, about dwelling in the, in, in the secret places to obey the Lord. The second thing is to think on His love. Think on His love. Inside the secret place is a fountain of love for the believer. It is a fountain of love in the secret place, in that deep, intimate relationship with God. And from its source, it will never run dry. That stream will never get weak. You'll never have to replace a pump. You'll never have to dig another well. You just continuously draw from that fountain. To abide in Christ's love, you, you do as the psalmist does. You think upon all the ways that God has proven His love toward you. You know, every Sunday, when we, go to, when we have our prayer request time and praise time, we should, I should really have to stop people. And say, hey, we need to get a, we need to, you know, stop so we can get along with get on with the rest of the service. I should have to stop people from standing up and praising and going on and on and on about how good God has been to you. But sadly, we don't do that. Most of the time, it's more it, it's burdens and heartaches. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we should, because we need to know how to pray for one another. We need to know how to pray for one another. Right? How to go in before the Lord and pray for one another. Know how to pray for our brothers and sisters. We should also be able to brag on the Lord. We should also be able to brag on the Lord. To talk about how good He has been. Because when you brag on the Lord, when you talk about how good and merciful and loving and kind, it lifts your spirits. The Holy Spirit that dwells within each and every believer becomes He's already alive, but he becomes ever more so active. When, when, when you talk about the goodness of God, and we need to specifically think on the way he proved it the most at the cross. Never should a day pass if we don't think about the cross. Never should a day pass when we don't contemplate the love of God for us through the cross. Yes, we can go on and on and on about individual blessings and ways that God has loved us individually, but none of them compare to Calvary. Calvary is the greatest proof of God's love. That is how He showed His love to His church. And we show love to Him by obeying Him. And so we think about His great love toward us. And because of His great love toward us through the cross, yes, Father, I won't lie to people for you. Yes, Lord, I won't steal nothing from them. Yes, Lord, I won't covet what anybody else has. Yes, Lord, I won't put anyone else as best as I possibly can. I won't put anything else before you. We're told in 1 John that his commands are not what? They're not grievous. They're not burdensome. It is a joy. It is a joy to obey and serve the Lord. Verse 2, look what it says. I will say of the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. The great Baptist preacher of yesteryear, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said, and I'm going to quote him a lot in this, to take up a general truth and make it our own by personal faith is the highest wisdom. I've made this application many times. It's real when it's yours. It, is, it can't be mama's faith. It can't be daddy's faith. It can't be grandma and grandpa's. It must be personal. It must be your faith. 
You think about the words of the Apostle Peter in his epistle. It says, For you have been delivered to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for who? You who are kept, kept by the power of God. It is the you, yes, for the whole church that Christ died, but I'm part of that church. And if you are in Christ, you are part of that church. Listen, listen to this. When you come, when you come to the end of your life, do you just want to have a, just a, a general truth about God and, and, and His graciousness and that He's merciful? Do you want that or would you rather have the particular promise that your sin is forgiven by Christ? 1 John 1, 7. You have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2, 20. And in death, you will gain Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 21. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung writes, there may be no I in team, but when it comes to claiming the specific truths of Scripture and God's particular promises for the individual believer... Listen to this. There is I in faith. It is of little comfort to say that the Lord is a refuge, but I'm going to tell you what, when you say he is my refuge, that is the essence of great, great comfort. Those who believe should also speak where it says, I will say, I will say, verse two says, I will say of the Lord. If you want to increase your faith, brag on the Lord. Brag on all that he has done and all, all that he has done for you and all that he's, all that he's going to do for us one day in eternity. God is infinitely wise, just, powerful, loving, merciful, and kind and good, spoke everything into existence, created everything from nothing, and said every one of it, every bit of it was indeed very good. But in distrust and unbelief, his creation rebelled against him. And he would be justified in allowing all of that creation to suffer forever under the penalty of his wrath. But he's merciful. Merciful and not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. And so he gave the best of himself. He gave his one and only son to pay the penalty that we rebels owe. He saw fit to allow me, one of those rebels, become one of his children. And therefore, just as the psalmist says, I'll brag the same way. He is my God. Some of you here today may need a refuge, a fortress, a secret place of escape. Let me urge you, do what the psalmist does. Find it in no other location but the shadows of the Almighty. The intimacy and the fellowship that you need and that God desires for you to have is available if you'll do just as James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus says in James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. As the heat of troubles increase, whether they be personal, national, whatever, or all the above, that is God's invitation to you to enjoy intimate fellowship with Him. I went Friday to see Brother Jerry, and I went to see a dead man. Really, a man on his deathbed. And he has that peace he has that intimate peace because he's had that intimate relationship with jesus the secret to drawing near to god and having him draw near to us is revealed clearly in the scripture hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast to our profession 
For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So what? What should we do? Verse 16 tells us, let us therefore come boldly. That's prayer. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in a time of need. This psalm is one of the many promises contained for the child of God in the Scriptures. It is a promise to find consolation and safety, not by escaping the storm. Most of the time, that's what we pray for. That's what we want. God, take the storm away. But that's not what, all we, what Jesus does all the time. And this psalm is a promise, one of the many promises that we might not escape the storm, but Christ Jesus will be with us in the storm. Point number two, what the reader receives. What the reader receives. Now the author switches gears with the language, with language in this psalm. He changes from talking about himself and what God is to him and all that God has done for him and all that God is doing for him to now talking about what God can do for the person reading this psalm. This is why I said this psalm has evangelistic has an evangelistic tendency to it. The psalmist tells of who God is. He tells of how awesome and powerful God is. He tells of God's love and kindness by the protection and safety that God provides for him. And look what it says in verse, verse 2. It says, I, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, and my God. In Him shall I trust. Verse 2, the psalmist writes, Because God has done all of this and because God is all of this, therefore, I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to trust in Him. And he's saying, the psalmist is saying, I'm going to trust in him, and you should too. I trust in the Lord, and therefore you should too. Look, look quickly at what it says in verses 3 to 8. It says, Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, under, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be like a shield and a buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flieth by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come unto thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. What does this tell us? Child of God needs not to fear. We need not to fear. This says that the Lord shall deliver him from... from a fowler. A fowler is someone who traps birds. Someone who traps birds. The psalmist is saying that the Lord protects those that abide in Him and, the, and, that, and abiding in the Lord keeps us from falling into traps. Spurgeon again says, Assuredly, no subtle plot shall succeed against one who has, his eyes of, who has the eyes of God watching for his defense. We are foolish and weak as poor little birds and are very apt to be lured to our destruction by, con by cunning foes. But if we dwell near to God, He will see to it that the most skillful deceiver cannot entrap us. That's how we, abiding in God, keeps us from the snares of the devil. And then he talks about the, no the noisome pestilence, something that comes to inflict harm and to destroy uh, something that is coming to inflict harm or destroy. Spurgeon said in his, in his commentary on this psalm, he said, Therefore, he who is the Spirit can protect us from evil spirits. He who is mysterious can rescue us from mysterious dangers. He who is immortal can redeem us from mortal sickness. The deadly pestilence of error we are safe from if we dwell in communion with the God of truth. 
There is a fatal pestilence of sin and we shall not be infected by it if we abide with a thrice holy God. There is also a pestilence of disease even from the calamity of our faith shall win immunity if, we, if it be of the high order which abides in God, walks on in calm serenity and ventures all things for duty's sake. Spurgeon goes on to say, says, too many among us are weak in faith and in fact place more reliance upon things that the world provides as answers than in the Lord, the giver of life. And if we die of pestilence as others die, it is because we acted like others and did not in patience possess our souls. Spurgeon didn't mean that because of a lack of faith that people died. No, what Spurgeon is saying is the church, people who are Christians should not die like the world does. He is saying that the Christians should not die like those who are outside of Christ. We do not have to live and die in fear. As I said Resurrection Sunday morning when we stood in front of that tree, and I, and I always point to the graveyard. It's so fitting that when we have our sunrise service, we're having it in a cemetery because, because of Jesus Christ, the cemetery is not the end. You and I who are in Christ who know Jesus as Savior have no need to fear death. I've said it many times and I'll say it again. For the Christian, we are either going to be fine or we're going to be fine. I should even maybe change it to this. We're either going to be fine or we're going to be better. Remember what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live as Christ, I'm going to keep on living for Him, doing the work that He has for me, trying to be a light, trying to show people the love of Christ, trying to proclaim the good news of the gospel, or I'm going to die and my reward is going to be in the presence of Him for all eternity. Take note of verse 8. Look what it says. Look what it says. It says, Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. How often do we wonder why things happen Wonder why things happen to us the way they do. We may try to do right, try to do right according to the Lord, try to do right by other people, but still we find ourselves dealing with trouble after trouble after trouble. While there are those who, in fact, they don't try at all to do what's right, they don't care what's right. They don't try to do right by God, they don't try to do right by people. They lie, cheat, steal, kill. They are the definition of wicked, yet everything they seem to do prospers. Everything they seem to touch turns to gold. They never seem to get caught. Justice never seems to be served. We suffer and the wicked prospers. This verse, verse 8, tells us that won't always be the case. That will not always be be the way that it is. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse 8. We who have had Christ take our sins to the cross. One day we're going to witness what shall happen to those whose sins are upon them on that great day when all things will be revealed. There's coming a day when everyone, it's just, it, the scripture tells us it's appointed unto people, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. You can fool people, you can get away with it, Corrupt men can sit as corrupt judges and not punish people the way that they should be. But one day, every man and woman will stand before the judge of all the earth. And his judge will be righteous 
and it will be eternal. And so the wicked will not always prosper. And truthfully, the wicked don't prosper here on earth as we think they do. God is just merciful and allows them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and receive Christ. And if they don't, there's coming a day when they're going to have to answer for that as well. Verses 9 and 10, look what it says there. There's another switch in verses 9 and 10. It says, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation. It says, because you have made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high your habitation, there shall no, no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come nigh to your dwelling. The reader has now become a believer just like the author. The reader is no longer looking from the outside of the shadow of the secret place, but now by faith has come to dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. Look what it says. Look what it says again. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, befall you, and neither shall any plague come to come nigh thy or your dwelling. No evil shall come to your dwelling because where is your new dwelling? It's in the secret place of the Most High. Spurgeon said that he was very fond of these two verses. In the year 1854, London was hit by a a, a very terrible outbreak of cholera. Every day, Charles Spurgeon had had to either go to a deathbed and hold the hand of somebody who was dying or preach a funeral. He went on for months and months and months. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that he grew tired of it. And he, was, he was to the end of himself. He was so tired of doing funerals and just so tired of seeing death. He was ready to just quit. When he was returning home one day from a funeral and he passed by a shoe store, a shoe store, and he stops to read a sign that's in the window and it's not a business sign. It was a sign that displayed Psalm 91 verses 9 and 10. And Spurgeon read that. And immediately his heart was lifted because he knew God was in control. Verses 11 and 12, look what it says. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. These verses should sound pretty familiar, not just because you've read through the Bible multiple times, but because these are the words that Satan uses or used when he was trying to tempt the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4. You recall Satan took Jesus to the top of the temple and told him to throw himself off the roof, and he quotes to Jesus these verses. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. If the Father had commanded Jesus to jump off of the pinnacle, then the angels would have cared for Jesus. But to jump without the Father's command would have been presumption and not faith and would have been tempting the Father. The point that I drive home here is that we do not have a blank check to do as we please and do as, to do as we, as we think is right just because we're saved. We don't have a blank check to live however we, we, uh, we think we can just because we say we're a Christian and think that God is just going to bless us and protect us no matter what decision we make. No. Abiding in the Lord means seeking to do His will and not our own. 
Sometimes, our, sometimes abiding in the Lord and putting His will first means our plans have got to change. I've got all these desires and things that I want to do. But God may say, no, this is the plan that I have for you. This is the way that I want to use you to build my kingdom. We can't make our will His. Our will is to be molded and shaped to fit His. If we are in His will doing what He has commanded us to do, He will give us His protection and upon us there will be, you know, uh, no harm will come to us until that will has been done. And therefore, as the text says, no lion or young lion, no, no adder or snake or dragon shall trample us under feet. These are all names for Satan. Satan is known as the roaring lion, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. He's the serpent from the garden who whispered lies, causing Adam and Eve to doubt God, and he has his head crushed by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. He is the great dragon of revelation that will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. So we have seen the author receive, we have seen what the author receives and what the reader receives, and they are all special blessings imparted to the believer who has that close, personal, deep, intimate relationship with God. But let's think about this in closing. What's God get out of it? What does God get out of the deal? That's our final point. What does God receive? All of this God does for the author and the reader. All of this God does for the believer. God does this for those who put their trust in Him. But what does God receive? The fact is God gives way, 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 way. And I can say that about a billion times over. Way more than he receives. Just look at this psalm. It's 16 verses in length. 15 of those verses are dedicated to what God does on behalf of his child. And only one verse, not even the whole verse, is dedicated to what God receives for it. Look what it says. It's verse 14. Because he, the person that believes, set his love upon me. That's God. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. We often feel like that we're underappreciated, taken for granted. We feel that way on our jobs. You know, we feel like, man, I, I'm not appreciated around here. I know we can feel that way at home, right? As parents, you feel like you're not appreciated by your, by your children, on and on and on. We, we, think, we can think about many aspects of how we feel like we never get appreciated. What about God? What about the Lord? For it is God that deserves all of our love, devotion, obedience, praise, and worship. None of those things does He properly and perfectly receive. We're all fallen in our natural sinful state. No one can love, love God and no one even attempts to truly, perfectly love God. Genesis 8 verse 21 says, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm, verse four, Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 read like this, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. 
The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Furthermore, no one in Christ, even us who are, have been redeemed and are trusting Christ for the salvation of our soul, can worship and obey God perfectly. Our flesh will get in the way. We come to worship and we get distracted. We, we, our minds are elsewhere. Our minds are on things that's going to happen the rest of the day or next week. We're more concerned about what we're going to, what, what, uh, when we're going to get out of here as opposed to what we can get while we're here. Our bodies might be here, but our minds are somewhere else. We mutter through the hymns and take no thought to what we're singing, take no thought to what's being said and go through it all without any shred of joy. We should be bursting at the seams with joy all the time, but especially when we come in the house of the Lord. We shouldn't be distracted by things of the world. We shouldn't lose focus. We shouldn't nod off on the Lord. We should be here and focused upon Him and who He is and what He's done and what His promises are and what can I take from this place and put forth in my life. Not what can I do, not what can entertain me. There are multitudes of prop, of popular, real, relevant churches that can set you up with a fishing trip, that can feed you when you get there every Sunday, that can give you that cup of coffee and that donut, put on the rock concert with all of its spectacle. When what God desires is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. When God desires, it's for mine and your hearts and our minds and our attention and our attentiveness. Music is a very important tool to prepare the heart for the preaching of the word of God. And I ask all those people that go to churches like that where it's all the entertainment, if they take it all away and it's nothing but your pastor and a Bible and him unfolding it and teaching it and preaching it to you, would you still go? Most people would probably not. We're, we don't come to worship to be enticed, to be entertained. We come to worship the Lord. To lift him up. And that should evoke such joy. Such joy. How can we do this? How can we phone it in? How can we not be bursting with the seams with joy? If we say we believe the Bible, another cherished psalm is Psalm 23. It's a psalm that's read just about at every funeral. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It says other in, in, in another part of it, thou hast anointed my head with oil and my cup runneth over. Inside of that cup is the blessings of God. You think about what Jesus prayed in that garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He, was, he drank the cup of divine wrath, but the cup that comes to us is the cup of divine blessing. 
And one of the ingredients in that cup is joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. We should be bursting at the seams with joy. Indifference is not in the cup. Look what it says again in verse 14. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. Because this person has repented and forsaken their sin and trusted the Lord Jesus as Savior, because they realized that Jesus took their sins upon himself, because the perfect became accursed and died in their stead, now they trust in him. And because so, God says, I will deliver them. I will set them on high. I will bring them to heaven to live with me forever because they know my name. Do you know the Lord's name? Know in that deep, intimate fellowship. If you know his name, it's because he's revealed it to you. He revealed it to you through the gospel. He removed those spiritual blinders from your eyes and showed you your sinfulness, showed you his holiness, and he showed you his love through the cross. Yes, you had to believe. Yes, you had to believe. But God did all the work. He took the first step. He took the second step. He took the 29th step. He took the 144th step. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He revealed himself to you through the gospel and rewards you even after that. He does all the work. That is why God is the God of love. He loves way more than he has ever loved in return. We'll love him for all eternity and it still won't be enough to pay him back for the love that he showed us. It is a tremendous occurrence that the God of heaven and earth knows our name, that our name would be written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a, a, a popular song. You may have heard it or sang it before. He knows my name. Every step that I take, every move that I make, right? He knows my name. We should shout for joy knowing that the Lord of heaven knows our name. Because one day there's going to come a day where he's going to cast aside the ones that he doesn't know. So praise God if he does know your name. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus is talking to the disciples about casting out demons. And Luke 10, 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. But look, God makes a big deal out of us knowing who he is. He does not say because they have some, they have done some great deed. It's not because they are so great a person. God says he will set them on high because they know his name. Our love towards him is not perfect, but his love towards us is perfect. And it is above and beyond all that you and I could ever ask or think. And it is infinitely more than we could ever, ever deserve. Look what it says. It says, I will deliver him. I will set him on high. When he calls, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and protect him. I will deliver him and honor him. Folks, these words should humble us and encourage us and inspire us to live sold out for Jesus Christ. And when we do, we will honor, he will honor us with a Long life, as it says in verse 16, that doesn't necessarily mean long in respect to years. It'll mean a full life, a full life, a long life, a a, a full life, referring to a Christian life that is not wasted, 
and squandered, but is used to the glory of God, used by God until we can't be used anymore. He calls us home. God gives so much to His children, and His mercies are renewed every morning. I want to leave you with this. is what it says in verse 16. With long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. With long life, I will satisfy Him. It is God's will for His children to live full lives in obedience and love and service to Him. We're to live lives as if we are God's sponge. And we come in here every Lord's Day and we get put in His bucket of water and we get filled up with His truths. We get filled up with His Spirit. And then we go out into the world and He wrenches us dry. Now we don't wait till the next Sunday to come back in here and get completely refull. We do that every day as we get alone with Him and get into His Word. But He wrenches us down to the very last drop. And then we come back and we get filled back up again. And we do that on and on until He calls us home. We do this by dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, by having that deep, devoted life and walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this, folks. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the promises, the encouraging promises that we find in Your Word. How that if You are first place in our lives, You're going to work everything else out. And that if we draw close to You and have that deep, intimate fellowship with You, the cares and concerns of the world are not going to shake us. The things that the world, the flesh, and the devil hurl at us are not going to trouble us. So God, it is our prayer this day that we all have, that we all do dwell in the secret place and abide under the shadow of you, the Almighty, that we seek to have that deep, personal, intimate relationship that every day, as we're seeking to become more Christ-like through the way that we obey you, that every day we're seeking to draw closer to you in fellowship and relationship, that we want to be closer tomorrow than we were today. And, every, and with each day that passes, more closer and more closer, that you use us thoroughly, wrench, ring us thoroughly full, down to the last drop, use us to your glory. That is our prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.